There has been a resurgence of demands for national service, calls for young people especially to give up a year or two of their lives to serve others, and perhaps even mandated by law. It is claimed that this will encourage an ethic of self-sacrifice and promote national unity. So what should we make of such calls? Today, we will be exploring this question from the perspective of Ayn Rand's ethics of rational self-interest. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Agustina Vargarasid, and I'm a research associate at ARI. And joining me today is Ben Bayer, fellow and instructor at ARI. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Agustina. I think this is a really important topic to discuss. I agree. So why don't we start talking a little bit about the context in which these uh, calls for national service have come up uh, in, the, in the recent past. So um, this all started with the 2020 presidential campaign and Democrats like Marianne Wilson, John Delaney, uh, Pete, Pete Buttigieg called for uh, national service programs and some of them, including Williamson, wanted it to be a mandatory national service program. And these calls actually intensified in the environment of, of the pandemic and, and in, the, in the environment of that catchphrase during the pandemic that, quote, we are all in this together. Uh, so that prompted more calls for national service from several commoners. Uh, and some argued that the pandemic itself created opportunities for service, for instance, um, for contact tracing people that have gotten the virus, um, for sanitizing hospitals and other settings, uh, for tutoring kids that were losing time from, from uh, they were away from school for a long time. And there has been even bipartisan efforts to put uh, more money for national service in the stimulus plans that we have seen uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, for instance, in, uh, for people to build houses, to feed the hungry and things like that. And what else, what else have, has happened like in this resurgence of national service, Ben? There's been a lot. And I should, I should just mention, you said it all started with the, with the presidential campaign. I think the most recent iteration of this started then. But there have been calls, uh, bipartisan calls for national service programs for, for decades now. Uh, Back in the late 90s, there was also a, uh, a push for it. Uh, the Ayn Rand Institute uh, started a national campaign against some of these calls for national service. We even participated in a protest uh, in the late 90s. I was there in Philadelphia where they had a pro-volunteerism uh, summit uh, using a, involving a number of former presidents. Uh, then again, after 9-11, uh, there were again calls for it in much the same way and and, and on the same kinds of grounds uh, that the recent calls for it in response to the coronavirus pandemic uh, have been issued. But yeah, uh, most recently, uh, after the context that you mentioned, there was then a, a, another big uptick in calls for this kind of program, starting really right after the inauguration of Biden, when the, the Biden administration took control, uh, we started to see more pressure applied to have more funding go to the various stimulus packages that have been being passed. For instance, in January, there was a prominent column that appeared from uh, General Stanley McChrystal. You may remember him as the former director of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he also happens to be the co-chair of a pro-volunteerism, pro-national service uh, nonprofit called Serve America, 
serve America together. He wrote this column in Time magazine uh, calling for Biden administration to dramatically expand funding for these so-called national service programs. Uh, keep in mind that by this point in January, the Biden administration had already signed a Biden had already signed a bill providing one billion dollars of funding uh, for national service so-called opportunities, uh, which would have funded sixty-five thousand different opportunities. Uh, that was inadequate, according to McChrystal. He wanted there to be a million such opportunities. So if they're already spending a billion dollars for the million of these opportunities for the sixty-five thousand, just imagine how many billions it might cost to fund what he uh, wants to be done. And what he's looking at, he he looks at the history of, for example, the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, as part of the New Deal program during the Depression, where uh, many Americans took up kind of make work uh, projects in some cases, uh, civ civilian infrastructure projects in others. Uh, he wants more programs like AmeriCorps, more programs like the Peace Corps. He wants new national service programs for uh, so-called environmental stewardship. So he's really calling for a lot. The McChrystal proposal was really just uh, trotting out a lot of numbers and, and concrete uh, programs that might be funded. But What's been especially surprising to me, at least uh, in the last month, is the kind of philosophic call and the, the philosophic um, uh, ideas that are being dredged up to push for this, uh, largely coming from the New York Times. So, for instance, about a month ago, the New York Times editorial board released a staff editorial. Uh, where they took the position that there should not just be money for people who want to voluntarily engage in so-called national service plans. They're, they called for uh, mandatory national service. You see here the title, Should Young Americans Be Required to Give a Year of Service? To be required to give a year of service. Uh, and we'll return to some of the ideas that came up in this editorial today, but uh, I, I'll just quote briefly one passage, which I think is telling. They ask a rhetorical question. What could be objectionable? What could be objectionable in asking all young people to pause before plunging into the scramble of adult life to donate some of their time and energy uh, to some socially beneficial, critically needed service at home or abroad? What could be objectionable? We're going to talk about the, that today. What is objectionable about it? Uh, and then just this past Sunday, uh, in another New York Times opinion piece, this one by someone named Margaret Renkel. Uh, she used the occasion of Memorial Day uh, to call for much the same kinds of policy. Now, she didn't specify whether she was calling for a mandatory policy or not, uh, but since she's talking about uh, Memorial Day and she's talking about the mandatory military service that her father was, uh, was involved in, uh, it's worth considering she might mean that too. Here's what she said about it. I'll, brief, I'll quote her briefly. She said, we might be able now to imagine the proclamation of another kind of Memorial Day, one that commemorates not self-sacrifice in war, but the lives we saved by joining together to serve the same cause. If Vietnam exploded the unquestioned commitment to national service, the coronavirus pandemic should have been the very thing to bring it back. She laments the fact that it didn't. She laments the fact that people have not sacrificed enough that they have not voluntarily joined various national service programs or other charitable causes on their own. We'll talk a little bit more about the ideas that she uses uh, in favor of this position later. But one thing I will mention about both of these New York Times pieces, both of them draw on ideas from a, a philosopher named William James. 
he was a 19th century American pragmatist philosopher, and he wrote this essay called The Moral Equivalent of War uh, in the late 19th century, basically calling for this mandatory national service. He's one of the first people to come up with this idea. This is one of the reasons this is an idea that's been around for a long time. Uh, and we're going to come back to talking about some of the reasons that James gave in favor of this proposal uh, and what might be objectionable uh, about some of these reasons. Um, we're going to look at the arguments some of the people give for this kind of program um, soon. But before we do that, I think we need to just state up front and very clearly uh, what we think uh, of this. So, Augustina, the title of this episode was Against the Un-American Call for National Service. Why would we be against this program and, and why would we regard it as un-American? So I think it is uh, useful here to uh, draw from what Ayn Rand herself said about the military draft and why this, uh, why a mandatory uh, national service would actually be a violation of individual rights. So Iron wrote and spoke about the morality of the draft, and particularly in her essay, The Wreckage of the Consensus, uh, which can be found uh, in uh, her book, Capitalism, the Own and Ideal. She said that of all the individual rights violations that can happen in a mixed economy, which is the kind of economy we live in now, the military draft was the worst of them. And she said, and I quote, it negates man's fundamental right, the right to life, and establishes the fundamental principle of statism, that a man's life belongs to the state, and the state may claim it by compelling him to sacrifice in battle, close quote. So for Rand, according to Rand's philosophy, each individual owns his or her own life, and no one has the right to control someone else's life, including the state. So if not one person has the right to demand life from another, neither does the government. And the type of, of service that, that these people calling for, for mandatory national service, this type of service uh, is, is not for, you know, to go on the battlefield. It's not, for, it's not a military draft. And clearly there's no comparison between, you know, the battleground and, uh, for example, doing contact tracing uh, of a virus or an epidemic. There's no comparison there, of course. But I think that that is a difference of degree. Uh, and I think the principle remains fundamentally the same, that your life does not belong to you, that it belongs to the state, and that the state has a, quote, right to dispose of it uh, for a year or two years or however long it, it wants. And as Rand explains repeatedly through her works, without a right to life, there's no right to anything else. Uh, the proper role of government is to protect individual rights. So if a government can force individuals to give up, an individual to give up his or her life for months or years or however long, what else is there for the government to protect? Because if the right of individuals to their own life is suspended, you might as well suspend all other rights and freedoms because the right to life is the foundation for all of those other rights. Yeah, and uh, you, you said at one point that uh, in Rand's view, we each own our own lives and no one else has the right to take them from us, including the government. And I would say it's, it's even more than that especially the government, but for the reason that you just stated, right? The whole reason that we have a government in the first place 
is to protect each of us and to protect our rights and to give us space to live free from each other's interference. And so when a government whose very task is to protect us and to protect our rights then goes and pretends like it owns us and we doesn't we don't have any, I mean that's that's it's it's really uh, it's really obscene. So this is part of the reason why we've been why we said this isn't just wrong. It's it's fundamentally un-American. The whole American view of government is that each of us has rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that no one, especially the government, should be allowed uh, to take away. But it's also worth emphasizing that this is not a point that applies only to calls for mandatory national service. I think there are a lot of people who recognize this point about what's un-American about mandatory national service who will still say, oh yeah, but it would be great if people would you know, volunteer for the sake of a higher cause for something bigger than themselves. And what, I, what we want to stress today is that even these calls for voluntary national service are un-American for the very same reasons, even if someone decides to do it uh, of their own volition. And that's because, look, if, if the American philosophy is that we each have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you can't think that the that pursuit of happiness is a right unless you think it's also good that people pursue their own happiness, unless you think that it's noble that people pursue their happiness. And to say that it's uh, wrong uh, to live up to a higher cause, it's to say that it's wrong to um, not see that there are things bigger than your life, that undermines that idea. That undermines the, the view uh, that there's something sacred and noble about each of us pursuing our own happiness. So there's an un-American moral idea here, uh, even if what we're talking about is voluntary national service. And, and we need to understand uh, more about why that's the case. Um, but I think that to get to that point, Augustina, what we should do is we should, we should look at some of the arguments that the advocates of national service, whether mandatory or voluntary, um, have been making in defense of their position. Uh, I think there are at least three of them, and, and we should we should go through some of these. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the argument. I'm going to put my uh, devil's advocate hat on and uh, give the arguments and see what you have to say to, to respond. So first we have the argument uh, that young people should be, quote, giving back to their communities or societies. So there's, this is an argument made, uh, for instance, by Anne Morat Connolly, who is the president uh, of Voices for National Service. And she says, and I quote, young people are concerned about the job market and they want to give back to their communities and our nation. AmeriCorps gives them the chance to accomplish both. It's a win-win all around. So why do you think, Ben, what do, you, what do you have to say about this? Why would you be opposed to, to this win-win for both parts? So one thing I would say is that this is the, I think this is the most plausible of the arguments that they give. And that's, uh, that, that, that's setting the bar um, pretty low because it's still not very good. There is no obligation that young people have to give back uh, because, first of all, what, is, what are they supposed to give back for? What is it that they have taken? Well, it's true that uh, when in the process of growing up, a young person relies on teachers, they rely on doctors, they rely on coaches, of course, they rely on their parents. Um, 
that uh, these are different people who are providing services that, that are instrumental and they're becoming educated and they're growing up uh, to become a healthy, mature adult. But in most of these cases, the teachers, the doctors, the coaches, these people are paid for their services, whether by the parents uh, or uh, by somebody, somebody else. And we can talk about who that other person might be, but they're paid for this. So we, they have been paid. They don't, they're not, uh, they don't, they're not owed anything further. The way this is usually put is, well, the, the, the children still owe something to society. Uh, well, if society is the government and the government has, let's say, paid the teachers, um, that's because society or the government has um, arrogated upon itself the role of having a monopoly over the education system, which neither the children nor the parents ask to happen. Uh, left to their own devices, parents will pay for the education of their children. Uh, there's a question of whether the parents are owed anything by the children. But of course, that's not what the, the National Service Program is not asking the children to pay something back to their parents, very interestingly. In any case, it's also very important and relevant that young children didn't ask to be born. It was the parents who decided to bring them into existence. Uh, and it's therefore the parents who owe something to the children. It's not the other way around. If there's anything that children owe their parents, it's a debt of gratitude for having been good parents, if in fact they were, uh, and they aren't always. But then that's something between the children and the parents, and it's not something between the children and so-called society uh, or, or the, you know, the needy who have nothing to do with the fact that the children were raised well. Um, in any case, I think this argument is phony on it, from a number of perspectives. I don't think it's really what's driving the calls for national service. I think it's a kind of fig leaf uh, that these proposals use to make it seem like this is an issue of justice when it's not really. Um, what these proposals are really about is the idea that it's, it's, it's noble and moral to serve some higher purpose, uh, not because it's an issue of justice, but just because they think serving that higher purpose is moral in and of itself. And, we'll, and, and that has to do with the next couple of arguments that we're gonna look at. Yes, um, the next argument that's related to this one too um, is, as we put it, the argument from unity. So there's, for, for example, Tom Rogers, who wrote a, a column in Newsweek uh, in June, 2020, in which he says, and I quote, we can all learn from individuals who have committed themselves to service for their country. Through public service and the pursuit of a common purpose, we can create bonds among people that transverse racial boundaries and overcome prejudices. In my experience, when people of diverse backgrounds train, live, fight, and serve together, they are exposed to diversity that they otherwise may not have been. As a result, they are more likely to respect differences, overcome racial biases, and develop a better understanding of other people's struggles. This seems a pretty noble um, goal to have. So why, why is it that this is not actually uh, a path we should take or, or a valid argument for national service? Yeah. I. This is an argument that's also been made a lot recently, and I mean, I think you're right. Part of what it's trying to appeal to is it's observing that there are certain problems with our society. Uh, there's a uh, there's a lot of irrational tribalism in our society, and if we could somehow eliminate that, that would be great. Um, but 
and the passage that you quoted, Augustina, is one of the better attempts I've seen to give an argument for why somehow national service would solve this problem. People from different backgrounds getting together, having to accommodate themselves to each other, learning new things about different backgrounds, somehow that would uh, solve the, the disunity that we have. But the, the attempt to explain really how that would work is usually not backed up by much actual argument or evidence. And that's especially true if you think about the kinds of disunity that we currently have. It's so like we have a, a vitriolic political environment where people will be tribalistic about their political loyalties. The people on one side will all wear masks and all get their vaccines and the other pe people on the other side uh, will do neither of those things. And it's seen as a mark of political loyalty, the position that you take, regardless of how it bears any uh, relationship to the evidence uh, uh, the scientific evidence about what's needed to, you know, stay safe during a pandemic. How is it exactly that a national service program where people are helping to, uh, you know, build houses or, uh, you know, work at hospitals, how is that going to help people become less politically tribalistic? How is that going to help them be more interested in the scientific method and paying attention to facts and evidence instead of whatever their political leaders tell them, that is totally unclear. And here's just one anecdote where this, where this crystallized it for me. You know, if, if, if we're supposed to become more politically unified because of the kind of national service that people have in the military, where they are all together in a unit fighting for each other, how do you make sense of the fact that According to some surveys that have been done, something like one in 10 of the people who participated in the Capitol riots were veterans or who were actually in active military service. If, if military service isn't stopping these people from actually trying to overthrow the government, how is that supposed to, in some way, uh, magically create this national unity where we all love each other and see past superficial differences and no longer are? Um, you know, bound by tribal loyalties. There's just no attempt to explain how this would actually work. And they might say, well, military service is the wrong kind of service. It has to be environmental stewardship or whatever. Um, well, but then there's a question of what's the, what's the evidence for that? Because the only evidence anyone's ever given um, is in relation to uh, the military. And I'm keeping my devil's advocate hat on and giving you more, I'm gonna give you more arguments for, for this particular um, call for national service uh, that claims that it will unite us more as a nation. So there's a quote from McChrystal in a column that says, at a time of unprecedented inequality, national service can help fuel economic recovery by teaching young Americans new skills and preparing them for careers through real life experience and professional development. Young people are specifically at the forefront of climate action and their envir environmental stewardship through national service can be critical to our long-term national security and equity. Service teaches you to focus more on the things you have in common with others and less on the differences. So what would you say to that, to that argument? I just, this is so bogus. Uh, this is, uh, to be frank, it's BS. Why is it that the skills that you would learn working in climate activism would somehow teach you more about what you have in common with other people than 
any other job in the service industry or in the business world where you have to work with other people who come from different backgrounds for the common purpose of whatever business activity you're engaged in. So like, just as an example, why is it that the skills you learn as a climate activist teach you more about what you have in common with others than say the skills you learn as uh, to use, you know, the opposite example, a propane salesman. Uh, you're working with people on a team to sell more propane. You're meeting customers from across the spectrum, people who all have, uh, uh, you know, the common need for heat, which is about as basic as it gets. And this is not just a random uh, example that I'm giving, because that's like exactly the kind of job that the, the people calling for national service don't want people to go into. And they want to tax the propane providers more so that more money gets funneled into, say, climate activism. Uh, so, but why couldn't we get the same kind of, um, you know, cooperative skills, if you want to put it that way, from any kind of private sector job, which people could have if it weren't for all these taxes being funneled toward the national service programs, for instance. There's no real argument given. And so this is, again, why I think this is a sort of a fig leaf argument. It's not really what's driving um, these proposals. There's something else that is. Uh, but let me challenge um, that a little bit. So I read in a poll, I believe it was from AmeriCorps, that, um, that in a poll that they did with uh, young people, I, I think it was from ranging in the age of 18 to 25 years old. Uh, and they said that, like 85%, I believe it was said that they wanted to join AmeriCorps to better their communities and 84% or something like that, very close to it, said that these skills would help them in the, in the, job, in the job market in the future, like McChrystal claims. So if these young people are interested, are interested in joining AmeriCorps because they want to gain skills and they will be, uh, that, that will help them, uh, in the future when they enter the actual job market and they want to make their communities better, uh, the places where they live better, etc. How isn't this a selfish interest that they have and therefore like moral according to Rand's ethics? Because one could argue that national service will benefit these young people uh, in the end or in the long run or even in the short yeah, it's a good question and uh, several things to say. One is that I, I'm not making any point right now about what motivation someone might have for taking one of these kinds of national service jobs. I mean, if the, the, if the money that's being spent on these programs has taken all the money out of the private sector and you can't find a job there and the only job that you can find uh, to get any job training is in a national service job. I say, as long as you know what you're doing and you're, that's your reason for doing it, uh, and especially if you realize the, the way that things properly should be uh, and that this is not the ideal, that you should go ahead and do it. But, and so my point isn't about the motivations of the people who might actually take these jobs. They might have better motivations. Um, my point is about the kinds of, and this is what we're going to get to in the next section, um, the kinds of motivations that the purveyors of these programs are trying to inculcate. Uh, and we'll soon see, I, I don't think what they really care about is, is job training. Um, so uh, there's more I could say about that, but I think that's, that's good for now. Um, because yeah, I think when, when they talk about national unity, uh, 
as I mentioned, there's not really much explanation for how these uh, how these policies are going to somehow eliminate the 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 faults in our society. The kind of national unity that they really care about is, I think, what's important here. Um, and it this points to what I think the real purpose that these uh, these programs are trying to inculcate is. And you see this, for instance, in a column that David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote back in May of 2020, when this was all really starting to uh, get ginned up in the first place. Here's what he said, and here's the kind of national unity that he talked about. And I think it's revealing. He says, what would it mean to the future social cohesion of this country if a large part of the rising generation had a common experience of shared sacrifice? What would it mean to our future politics if young people from Berkeley spent a year working side by side with young people from Boise, Birmingham, and Baton Rouge? So what's really playing the fundamental role here isn't, oh, you're getting to meet people from Berkeley are getting to meet people from Birmingham. It's that people from Berkeley and Birmingham and Boise are all getting to have this experience of shared sacrifice together, where they're all realizing we're, we're leaving what would otherwise have been our chosen path in life. We are giving up our own personal ambitions and we are uh, together experiencing the, 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 what they think is a fact, that there's something more important than any of our own individual lives. There's something bigger than us. There's a national collective cause that's greater than us. That's really what they want to encourage. And it's it's unifying around that goal that they care about. Um, and so I think that this is a good segue for us to get to the last of the big arguments that are made for this position. Uh, yes, so, well, that poll you read honestly seems um, to me like straight out of a villain from one of Ayn Rand's novels. And uh, so does the following quote that I'm going to read uh, by uh, this author that um, you mentioned before, Margaret Renkel. Uh, she, like you said, wrote this column in the New York Times uh, a few days ago on May 30th, uh, uh, in the occasion of, you know, Memorial Day. So I will quote her now. Plenty of Americans, essential workers, first responders, hospital staff, teachers, and many others lost their lives because they made such sacrifices. Millions more complied unhesitatingly with measures designed to keep the most vulnerable among us safe. But two, too many of us did not. Too many were hostile to the very idea that they should alter their behavior even in the smallest way for the sake of strangers. So what do you have to say about this part of her argument? Yeah, so, and she elaborates on this at some length in the article about how part of the reason why she's so disappointed with people's response to the pandemic is that she thinks all of the problems with the response came from the fact that people were too selfish that they didn't sacrifice enough. And so the people who refused to wear masks and didn't care whether or not they were infecting other people, they're selfish. Uh, what they really needed to learn was sacrifice. They didn't really, they didn't learn that we're all in this together. They should have learned from the doctors uh, and the first responders who were self-sacrificial and who were out there fighting the pandemic. And I just wanna push back strongly against the idea that the people who would 
recklessly endanger the lives of others uh, are selfish and that the problem with them is that they're not self-sacrificing enough. I mean, this is the big pushback that uh, the Institute, for instance, had to make. If you remember back uh, in the summer when Paul Krugman uh, basically made the same argument in the New York Times saying that the reason that uh, the Republic, various Republicans have uh, uh, not been happy with masks or denied that COVID was a problem, that they were following the selfish ideology of Ayn Rand. And this is just, this is completely absurd. Uh, there's several things to say here. One is that I think the better physicians, the better researchers, scientists, first responders, et cetera, the people who really have been fighting the pandemic, uh, because it is a real problem, it, it's, it's an insult to say that they're doing this self-sacrificially, that they've chosen these careers because they care passionately about the work. They care passionately about solving the kinds of problems that the career of medicine, for instance, involves. Uh, and that you have to, you have to be uh, selfishly passionate about a subject matter and about a field if you're going to dedicate decades of your life to studying it, to figuring out what's actually true in this field. And then, yeah, you're willing to act on that knowledge when, when uh, you know, push comes to shove, and that sometimes occasions risks. But anything uh, that you're passionate about always in uh, involves risk of loss. Uh, nobody would want to live on any other terms if they, they, they're, there's always risk in life. Uh, and so it's, it's an insult to these people to say that they don't have a selfish stake in what they're doing, that they are doing it only because other people need it, only because other people demanded them to do it. That's, that's terrible. Um, but, but also, and for the same reason, it's the converse point. The people who are who recklessly endanger others, the people who don't care about what's actually true, about whether or not this was a threatening disease. It's ridiculous to say that they're selfish. Um, I wrote an article about this, about why it's selfish to wear a mask. Um, other people uh, and the things that they, uh, the ways in which they fill up our lives, that is an important, rich part of what is in our self-interest. And I think everybody can see this. If you look at the way in which during the pandemic, we were all separated from each other and we couldn't, we couldn't experience what other people had to contribute to our lives, whether friendship, whether uh, recreation, um, whether just you know, the, the company of you know, waiters and waitresses at a restaurant, our lives were made all the worse for the fact that we couldn't live with other people. And they were made worse, it was worse for our self-interest. So somebody who cares about other people and what they contribute to their lives, they are acting on a premise of actual rational self-interest. And so it's ridiculous to say the problem with the people who were reckless was that they were selfish. It's just, it's an impoverished conception of what self-interest means. It's a straw man that's always been used to castigate self-interest and to set up this argument for why if you really want to be moral, what you want to do is give up your self-interest. That's not what self-interest really is. Um, and when you eliminate that straw man argument, the argument for actually being self-sacrificial pretty much collapses in its own right. And we'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, yes, and, and uh, I agree with that. And, and for more on what we, as in era had to say, uh, we've written about a new ideal, uh, our publication. So if anyone's interested, they can check out what we wrote there. 
Um, but I would like to push back a little bit on a slightly different angle of what um, Renkel is saying, because she brings up this issue of national service um, in connection a lot, like we said, with the pandemic and how this pandemic should be kind of like a point of inflection for the future to, uh, to, to, to rethink national service and to, to give it probably a shot. So I, I wanna challenge the following. So wouldn't national service train young people in a way that will guarantee that if we need more people to make sacrifices, as she says, in the future, like doctors and essential workers have done during the pandemic, that they would actually do it. So if we, let's say, knock on wood, if we get hit with another pandemic next year or, or a few years from now, wouldn't these young people be at the fore forefront of the battle against it? And how is that not beneficial to society? Because like, if, you, if we don't act now to, to protect our society in the future, we may see worse consequences than what we saw during this current COVID pandemic. It's interesting how this latest set of calls for national service, all of them, even though they draw their arguments and their data from the experience of military service, they all say, oh, but I'm not actually calling for mandatory military service. I don't want to have a military draft. And yet, the argument that you just gave, Augustina, would just as easily justify the military draft. I mean, what about 9-11? Uh, couldn't we get hit by another terrorist attack? Don't we need to have military readiness? And if our, if our people become soft because they've not been drafted into the military, how will we be able to deal with the next terrorist threat or when you know, Russia or China pose a military threat? So I, mean, I don't think that kind of uh, argument justifies it if you don't think it justifies the military draft. And indeed, in both fields, whether the military or in medicine, uh, it's, it's really important to realize that we have been able to prepare ourselves for whatever threats other people or nature um, pose to us through all kinds of ways other than um, government mandates. People, some people have an interest in medicine. Some people want to learn more about how the body works. I, I know plenty of doctors who are just fascinated by the puzzles that they can solve. You don't need the force of government to force people into a career uh, to uh, make sure somebody's going to learn it. Same way with the military. We've had an all-volunteer force uh, you know, since the 1970s, and yet we have one of the strongest militaries, if not the strongest military uh, in the world. And we've done that simply by drawing on volunteers. And I think you know, what's, at the, what's at the root of this is that what makes a medical system or what makes a military system powerful uh, isn't brute force. It's not the fact that you've got people with muscles who are willing to move things around. It's that you have people with minds who are interested in learning how to solve problems, interested in discovering new truths, whether it's how to combat a disease, create a vaccine, um, or whether it's how to create new military technology that makes you know the grunts on the ground less and less necessary. Um, so digging a little bit deeper in, into Renkel's uh, argument, and um, I would like to, and like, so Renkel, both Renkel and the uh, New York Times editorial um, column that, that we mentioned earlier, 
both uh, both both side this uh, philosopher that you mentioned before, William James, um, and in particular his essay proposing the moral equivalent of war. So what this what they cite is so Rankle says, and I quote: "National service will be a morally uncomplicated way for young people." And here she cites uh, James to get the childishness knocked out of them and to come back into society with, with healthier sympathies and sober ideas, close both quotes. So they agree that we don't need actual war to improve moral character. So we need some other kind of challenging sacrifice to do so. Yeah, James is really the originator of, of this idea as far as I'm aware. But, but Augustine, you quoted the part that Rankle quoted from James's essay about getting the childishness knocked out of them. I, it's worth, if anybody is interested, Google this essay, uh, The Moral Equivalent of War, or Proposing the Moral Equivalent of War. Google this and read the whole thing. Um, there's a lot more in there that somebody like Rankle or the New York Times editorial board didn't want to quote. And there's one quote in particular that I thought you should read to us from this James essay. Yeah, so he writes, and I quote, but who can be sure that other aspects of one's country may not, with time and education and suggestion enough, come to be regarded with similarly effective feelings of pride and shame? Why should men not someday feel that it is worth a blood tax to belong to a collecti collectivity superior in any respect? What the whole community comes to believe in grasps the individual as in, uh, sorry, as in a vice. The war function has grasped us so far, but the constructive interests may someday seem no less imperative and impose on the individual a hardly lighter burden, close quote. That yeah. quote is so what he's telling. Yeah, so what he's saying there is uh, up until when he's giving this speech, uh, a population has always been able to um, channel its higher, allegedly moral energies toward war uh, by uh, where individuals would pay this blood tax to belong to a collective superiority. Uh, he himself is, considers himself to be anti-militaristic. He doesn't like the fact that this blood tax has actually been paid in human blood. But what he wants is some kind of equivalent of a blood tax where people don't have to die, but where they can still see that they are, uh, that they are grasped in a vice by society, that, in, that the society owns the individual. Um, and he's looking for ways to teach people that. He's looking for ways to do themselves. And, and I just want to emphasize it. Like, even, even though James is a famous American philosopher, this is the very un-American moral idea that I was identifying before. This is the very idea that the founding fathers fought against when they declared independence from Britain. This is the idea they fought against when they proposed that every man has a right to his own life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, it's, the, it's the idea that the founders voluntarily paid with their blood to oppose, uh, rather than paying a blood tax. They were against taxes. 
Uh, and it, it's 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 a it's an un-American idea, not only to the extent that it is involves a mandate, but especially to the extent uh, that it's even something that someone would propose for us to think voluntarily as something good to do, because um, there's there's no earthly reason for why we should regard our lives as somehow uh, under the control of or owned by any kind of collective. There's, there is no collective. Uh, there are individuals who voluntarily cooperate to achieve common purposes when it's to their mutual benefit. It's pure mysticism to say that we belong to some kind of higher uh, collective. And just to um, punctuate this, uh, I, I think it's worth sharing one of my favorite quotes from one of the founding fathers, because it's, it's, it's often argued, and James argues, that, and you, you quoted James to this effect, Augustina, where he says, you need to have this shared sacrifice to knock the childishness out of you, that when we're not drafted into some collective enterprise, we somehow become weak or degenerate or something like that. And the problem is that our forefathers fought in these wars, but now we've become, we've become weak and degenerate, not having to fight wars. Well, why the heck do you think our forefathers fought these wars? What was it they were trying to achieve for their offspring? Here's what John Quincy Adams said. He said, the science of government, it is my duty to study more than all other sciences. The arts of legislation and administration and negotiation ought to take the place of, indeed exclude in a manner, all other arts. I must study politics and war that our sons may have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. So it's, it's this peaceful existence where we're each free to pursue our own happiness to the extent that our ambition will take us. That's exactly what our better forefathers were fighting for. And when people like James don't, don't recognize that, it's, it's really telling. So I, I so, think we should we uh, should we should talk a bit more about what, given that this is you know what's at the core of what they're pushing for, what this really shows about um, these calls uh, for national service because I think they show something about the moral philosophy that's at work behind them. Um, so Augustina, you you read some some passages uh, from uh, that Margaret Rankle article where uh, you know she's saying what well, we really need to learn what we really should have learned but didn't learn during the pandemic was uh, about the nobility of self-sacrifice that's definitely especially when you see her you know invoking William James that's definitely the uh, the philosophy that's being um, invoked and which is I think really at the core of this um, but it, this should really it tells us something about this philosophy when you see it being invoked in this way, because you know it's often said, well, you know what what the what the morality of self-sacrifice or altruism is really about is 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 helping people, helping society, benevolence. But when you see how the ways in which this kind of program, it's there's no real thought being put into how it would actually help anyone, how it would create national unity, how it would break down barriers, um, when there's no thought put into how it would benefit people's work skills, et cetera, versus the alternatives in the private sector, I think it really underscores that it's not really about those goals. 
that it's really just calling for sacrifice for its own sake. That and it shows that what this morality of self-sacrifice is, is about is not about the achievement of any positive. It's about uh, it's about knocking positives down. It's about suppressing achievement. And there was this um, letter to the editor in the New York Times that um, I think you should read, Augustine, because I think it 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 made an observation that was really revealing about these kinds of proposals. Yes, I agree that it was very insightful and it points to something that is really important. So I quote, I was dismayed to see the editorial board advocate, even if equivocally, a nationwide system of state imposed forced labor, but especially so to see it proposed that such a system target only a minority of the population, namely young people. If service is so personally and socially beneficial, why not include everyone? Isn't it awfully convenient when the people advocating programs of forced labor would, forced labor would never be subject to those programs themselves? Close quote. And yeah, it was interesting. The answer, to look, sorry. Yes. Uh, you, know, you can go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, I thought it was interesting to, to look at the letters that came in to the Times because over, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of them were, were praise, praising the proposals. Like, oh, it's about time that somebody calls um, for national service. There is this one critical letter that they printed, the one that you read, the one that's up on the screen and is uh, by someone named John, Jonathan Slifkin. I don't know who he is, uh, but this is a great point. And it's one that really brings something out because yeah, if if we really could benefit our society so much um, by mandating national service, if we could really make people's lives better, why aren't why are they only targeting young people? He doesn't really give an answer, uh, but you can imagine what the answer might be. Um, there's something about um, young people and the time that the time in their life that they are targeting that I think that these proposals are really uh, uh, trying to impact. And um, I mean, Ayn Rand had her, herself a view about this with regard to military service, didn't she? Yes, so in uh, the same essay that I uh, mentioned earlier where she talks about the military draft, um, the essay is again, the wreckage of the consensus in capitalism, the unknown ideal. Uh, she made an observation about this very point that this, uh, person that wrote the letter to the editor is, is making. She says, and I quote, the years from about 15 to 25 are the crucial formative years of a man's life. This is the time when he confirms his impressions of the world, of other men, of the society in which he is to live. When he acquires conscious convictions, defines his moral values, chooses his goals, and plans his future, developing or renouncing ambition. These are the years that mark him for life. And it is these years that an allegedly humanitarian society forces him to spend in terror, the terror of knowing that he can plan nothing and count on nothing, close quote. So like you mentioned, uh, Ben, and like this uh, person who wrote the letter to the editor mentioned, if national service is a moral duty, it's a universal moral duty, 
What does it say about its proponents that they are only targeting these young people in these crucial years of their lives? Yeah, I think it's I think that what it's saying is these people who are right at the moment of their lives in which they are beginning to plan the rest of their lives, in which they're beginning to define their core values, in which they're starting to realize they have to take responsibility for their own lives. These, these policies are saying, we don't want them to think that's true. We want them to think that they don't own their lives. We want them to think that they belong to a, a, some kind of Borg collective, uh, that they shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that they should pursue their own happiness, uh, and and we want to we want to eradicate that view of theirs for the rest of their lives since this is the time when they're impressionable. And I just think that that is atrocious. Uh, I think it's I think it's un-American as anything could be, and um, so the, and the fact that there weren't more letters making this kind of point or <laughs> that there weren't more of them published, um, you know, tells you a lot about uh, the, the philosophy that is guiding um, the current editorship of places like the New York Times. Um, and we could say a lot more about that, but we should probably turn to some of the questions that, that we've gotten. Yeah, so let's, um, let's begin with this question that we got through um, in, in YouTube. It says, the more conscious student will realize such exploitation of national service and start to resent the egalitarian ethic. Won't this plan of national service just backfire? I don't have a good answer to that question off the top of my head. I don't know that it would. It whether it would would depend on a lot of things. Um, it would depend on uh, what these people, what these young people know, for instance. So like, if they've been taught their whole lives in, in K through 12 education, that, um, you know, some e equivalent version of the doctrine of self-sacrifice is true. If they've been told that, uh, what they should really concern themselves with is an environmental ethic, for instance, there's a lot of this pushed in K through 12 and then a national program that, that comes along that gives them the opportunity to gain some kind of quasi sense of self-esteem from actually working toward that goal. Uh, I don't know that they would necessarily uh, resent it. They, they might resent it if uh, they're made to do it um, against their will uh, for extended periods of time. Um, that is, I think, in part what happened with the military draft, I think that uh, I think that uh, enough people were drafted in this country uh, for a long enough time and were made to deal with sacrifices so terrible uh, that that they did become resentful of it, and that's part of the reason why the military draft was repealed. But that doesn't that doesn't that's even if there is that kind of resentment and that kind of rebellion, it doesn't mean that what replaces it is something better. What can replace it could, can very well be something worse. It's very easy, I think, uh, for someone who goes through that kind of experience to come out of it with just a kind of general nihilism where nothing matters, not even their life. Um, if they've not been given the opportunity to uh, make choices 
and to uh, to actually plan their life. They won't know how to do it. And even if they rebel against the dogmas that they've been given, they won't know what an alternative positive course of action will be, which is yet another one of the things that's so terrible uh, about these kinds of proposals. It, you know, I don't think it will uh, have the same kind of impact as, as the military draft did, uh, but uh, it would have some you know, scaled version of that, I think. Yes, I agree with that. And I would just briefly add that with this, like you, you alluded to this before, but with the state of education where um, young people are taught that there's a duty, they must feel fearful, they come on good and they must self-sacrifice. And, you know, this, they're taught these uh, ethics of uh, altruism. Um, it would take an independent mind uh, to step away from that and look for an alternative and actually think through what this actually means for their lives and to notice that this is not really on their self-interest and how immoral these type of calls are. Um, and that's, we'll see if that happens. Uh, that's part of, I think, our mission at ARI to change education and to educate uh, young people in the ideas of brands, uh, rational self-interest. So there could be an opposition to this, I think, if these ideas gain enough steam to challenge altruism. Um, but let's go to the next question, which came from Zoom. Uh, could it go back, and I think this is a good question for you, Ben, since you obviously have a background in philosophy or philosophy PhD. Could it go back as far as Plato's Republic with the idea that the young men and possibly women ought to be geared up to defend the police as a duty? Well, there's no question that the, I mean, the whole morality of self-sacrifice goes back very, very far, uh, at, you know, at least as far back as Plato. And um, what was, what's new about the national service proposals that we've been talking about is that they are supposed to be an alternative to military service. Plato, uh, thought that everything should be mandatory, in effect, military and non-military service. His view was that in, in his ideal city-state, everyone's career is chosen by, in effect, philosopher kings, uh, and everyone's good to be divided into classes, uh, the military class, the guardians, the workers, etc. Uh, it was, you know, in, in essence, a kind of communistic society. And I mean, this is just underscoring further the way in which the the proposal here is a fundamentally anti-American proposal. And that's not because Plato was uniquely anti-American. It's because the whole of the history of philosophy uh, stood up in favor of the morality of self-sacrifice, you know, beginning with Plato, running especially through the Middle Ages. And it's only around the time of the American founding that anybody bothers rebelling against this, first with certain Enlightenment philosophers, then um, with the founding of the United States. So uh, to, uh, you know, the fact that it's distinctively, that it's distinctively American, of course, um, doesn't mean that it's right. Um, it's, you have to give an argument for why the pursuit of happiness as a moral ideal is actually a moral ideal. But this is something that the uh, that the Enlightenment thinkers began to do. Something that the founding fathers began to do. Uh, they didn't do it to completion. They didn't do it in a way that was, I think, logically consistent. Um, 
Ayn Rand is somebody who did. I think she gave, uh, she's the one who, who gave us the philosophy that the enlightenment, as Ankar Gatte usually puts it, um, the philosophy that the enlightenment should have had, but didn't. And um, there's, if you go to the, uh, if you go to the Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel, there's a, there's a conference that we recently did on the topic of uh, the enlightenment and enlightenment values. And if you look up Ankar Gatte's uh, talk on this topic, I think you'll, you'll learn more from that. So yeah, I think I think okay. we're in a good place to start to start to wrap up. Yes, I agree. So um, uh, some of the resources that we mentioned today, or that would be useful for uh, anyone that is interested in uh, learning more about uh, Rand's perspective on this sort of issue. Um, I, first, of, first off is Ayn Rand's uh, book, The Virtue of, of Selfishness. Then we mentioned the essay, The Breakage of the Consensus, which can be found in Rand's book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. And then another clarifying resource on these specific type of proposals is uh, your article, Ben, uh, on New Ideal, titled Democrats' National Service Plans are Immoral in an American. And for next week, our next episode of New Idea Live, it's gonna have Onkar Gatte and Robert Mayhew discussing the topic of Ayn Rand on God, reason, and atheism. It's gonna be a very interesting discussion. So with that said, um, let's go over how you can follow, follow us on social media. So if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel, click the bell, to get notifications when we go live or post new material. And please also like, share, and comment on this video to help attract attention to our channel. And likewise, if you're watching on Facebook, please like and share this live stream. And you can send us an email if you have questions or comments. And we always read and often we actually answer these emails. And sometimes we take your suggestions for future topics for our podcast. So with that said, thank you, Ben, uh, for being here today. Uh, I hope our audience found this uh, discussion clarifying and hope to see you all next week. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.